I'm Dr. Max Pemberton, a doctor and Daily Mail columnist, and this is the final part of a special three-part series where I speak to Mr. Alastair Mace, an ear, nose and throat consultant surgeon at Charing Cross Hospital London and the Harley Street ENT Clinic. Alistair, thanks so much uh, for coming back. We've got a whole load of questions that people have been, have been asking. Well, the first one, my husband keeps getting nosebleeds and he shrugs it off, but it's quite alarming. He's 50, what could be causing them? Because actually this is interesting his age, isn't it? Because it seems to be that people who are either very young or slightly older tend to be more susceptible to nosebleeds. So, so, so what is going on? Absolutely. So uh, in, in young kids, Unfortunately, there's no two ways about it. It tends to be because of nose picking, really. Um, and uh, sort of uh, you know, no, dirty picked noses. Um, <laughs> that's why children get nosebleeds. Um, uh, in, in older so so you know treating that um stopping the, the children picking at their nose um, giving them some antiseptic cream to uh sort of clear up any staph infection around the nose in children generally works quite well in older people as you as you say there's a sort of another peak in an older age um and that's often related to some sort of underlying health conditions or medication that they, that they take um, high blood pressure can be a problem, um, partly because it, it, it stops the nosebleeds settling when they start. Once they start, if you've got high blood pressure, particularly if you start to get anxious and the blood pressure goes up even more, it's difficult for the blood to, to clot and the vessel to close off. So the nosebleeds become more profuse and more frightening. Um, and then also people are often on medication to thin their blood for various reasons. So if they've had problems with strokes, um, uh, or heart attacks, they may be put on medication that stops clots forming, which protects them uh, from those problems, but also stops their, their, their nose bleeds from clotting. Things like aspirin um, or warfarin or other newer medications that people take. Um, and uh, so they can have quite severe nosebleeds and uh, you know, elderly people sometimes end up in hospital with very severe nosebleeds and sometimes needing to have the nose packed um, or even have an operation to, st to stop the nosebleeds. So it can be quite you know, serious sometimes in elderly people. The first thing to say is that blood often looks very frightening because um, it sprays everywhere, but actually life-threatening nosebleeds are incredibly rare. And the first thing is not to panic too much. <laughs> there are some sort of simple first aid measures that you can do, pressing the soft part of the nose which I'll demonstrate, but you won't be able to see, but picture the, the soft part of the nose, you can hear the change in my voice there as I, as I block my nose. That squeezes the common area where the nosebleed comes from, which is the septum, the, the partition wall between the two sides at the front there, which is the commonest point for bleeding. I always thought, I thought you had to, everyone always does it like up at the, near the eyes. Is that yeah. wrong? No, it's a common misconception. That does absolutely nothing. It's the soft part, the lower part of the nose. You have to squeeze it's the two sides it. of the nose together. A bit of ice on the nose can help. The ice constricts the blood vessels, sucking on a bit of ice as well making sure you spit all the blood out, lean forward and spit the blood out because if you swallow blood, it can make you feel quite unwell. And if you start vomiting as well as bleeding, that can all get a bit, all get a bit panicky. So spitting out all the blood, trying to relax, take some deep breaths, pinch the nose very firmly. And usually within a few minutes, it will, it will settle down and stop. If you're having frequent nosebleeds like that, then uh, there often is something that we can do to prevent nosebleeds happening. We can do some cautery for the nose. And that's something that's very easily done in an ENT clinic with a little bit of local anaesthetic in the nose. 
uh, and we use a tiny stick, little bleb of something called silver nitrate, a little chemical on the tip. Um, and we just touch the, the bleeding point, if you can identify where the, the blood vessel is that's been bleeding. We touch that with the silver nitrate, it forms a little scab and a little scar there, and the blood vessels shrivel up, and that can prevent those bleeds in the future. So it's, it's definitely worth seeing an ENT specialist for getting recurrent bleeds. That, that's actually, that's what my, um, my barber, I go to Toby's barber, that's what he does. If he causes, causes a little nick, he's got a little stick of silver nitrate, it's, it stings a little bit, it's nothing, and then it suddenly stops it bleeding, it's like a miracle. Yeah, it's great stuff. It does stain things, though. That's the trouble. And uh, uh, often people will get a little dark stain under the nose. I always tell them it will disappear in a few days. But I've ruined a number of white shirts in my clinics from staining from silver nitrate because it doesn't come out of shirts. <laughs> uh, I feel like I've got a lump constantly in my throat when I swallow. What could be causing it? Could it be a growth? I'm becoming increasingly worried about it. So um, this simple, single symptom of a lump in the throat is not usually anything to worry about. That's, that's the first thing to say. There are other symptoms that might go with it that we might be more worried about. But if that's the only symptom, then I would be very reassuring right from the start because it very rarely signifies anything serious. And the symptom of a lump, a feeling of a lump in the throat, actually it has a, has a, uh, a, a name. Um, uh, we call it globus, globus pharyngeus, and it used to be called globus hystericus because it used to be thought of as very much a psychological problem, psychological issue uh, related to stress and anxiety. And, and it often is. Actually, didn't he? he wrote quite a lot about um, <laughs> yeah. it's like you know, it's like a whole massive thing. He, I think in fact he wrote a whole book about it. Yeah. We don't. We we try not to call it globus hystericus anymore because it does up, upset patients if you're insinuating that they're hysterical. But but there is definitely very much often a psychological overlay to the whole thing, and it becomes a, a vicious cycle of, of worry and anxiety about what is going on in my throat. Have I got a cancer, a tumor, something at the back of my throat, or is my breathing or swallowing going to stop? Um, and you get more anxious about that, and then that worsens the symptom. But with all these things, you know, it's important to rule out the most serious things first of all. So going into the symptom, if there were other symptoms like pain, difficulty swallowing, blood, you know, spitting up blood, a hoarse voice, or those sorts of things, they would actually ring alarm bells to me and we call these red flag symptoms. So if there were some of these other symptoms with that, then I would definitely be, be more worried. But if it's a simple symptom of a lump in the throat, it's not usually anything to worry about and some reassurance can be very helpful. It's very easy for me to reassure people because I can put a telescope down, I can have a look down there and go, don't worry, there's nothing there, go away and be reassured. It's much more difficult for the GPs who don't have access to be able to do that to, to convincingly reassure someone. Um, so you know, we're always happy to see people with, with globus or with that lump sensation in the throat, even if it just means being able to reassure them and, and tell them to go away and they feel that they've had a thorough examination and there's nothing to worry about. Um, you mentioned hoarse, hoarse voice, and actually we did have a question about this, so I'll, I'll, um, I'll ask you this. I've got a very hoarse voice, and I'm not sure why. I find that if I'm in a loud environment where I have to talk loudly, then I often lose my voice totally the next day. Have I damaged something in some way? So um, again, a hoarse voice is a symptom that, that often worries people. And you know, if it is a persistent hoarse voice, it's been going on for more than six weeks, particularly in anyone that's elderly uh, or smokes or drinks a lot of alcohol, then that is a serious symptom that needs looking into and they, they do need to have the, the throat checked. But equally, a hoarse voice is a very common symptom as well. And the vast majority of the time, it, 
it doesn't signify a cancer or anything serious to worry about. And the, the common things that I see will be um, simple laryngitis, which is you know usually easy to diagnose because it comes after a bad cold or a flu, and it's usually associated with a sore throat, and it goes away after a couple of weeks. But there are other things like um, polyps on the vocal cords or nodules. And just hearing the, the, the sort of brief description there makes me wonder whether this, this patient has got vocal cord nodules. And vocal cord nodules are, are caused by trauma of the vocal cords, by the vocal cords knocking together repeatedly in a traumatic sort of way. So people that shout a lot or singers or, or people that use their voice um, throughout the day for their jobs, particularly teachers that have to speak up in front of a class, public speakers and, and people like that are prone to developing nodules, sometimes called singers nodules because they are common in singers. Or in children, we call them screamers nodules. <laughs> So children that run around the playground screaming at their friends can get nodules. And uh, they're nothing to worry about, but they are quite difficult to treat. And just like this, this person has said, they're often worse after a, a night out when you've been in a noisy bar or a, a nightclub and you've had to, to shout over background noise for several hours and be much worse the following day and may lose the voice because the nodules get very swollen. And... Um, Really, the mainstay of treatment for nodules is to try and rest the voice as much as possible and reduce that, that trauma. So even a period of just not speaking for a few days or a week can have dramatic effects, although obviously that can be very difficult for your social life. But uh, uh, taking a few days out, sitting somewhere quiet, reading a book during the day, not talking to anyone for two or three days can make a dramatic difference. But they, unfortunately, nodules do tend to come back if you slip into bad habits again. Um, what are saliva stones and how do you get tested for them? I think my breath is terrible despite constant toothbrushing, flossing and mouthwashing and a friend suggested that it could be the cause. So there are, there are two types of stones that you can get in the throat and I think they may be getting a little bit confused here between salivary stones and tonsil stones which are two completely different things. So salivary stones don't cause bad breath. They, they cause other problems. They cause swelling in the salivary gland. And what, what can happen is that the, the cheek or under the jaw can swell up when you eat, particularly if you're eating bitter or spicy things. And that's due to a blockage in the tube. It wasn't, wasn't one of the tests that I seem to remember at medical school, if you make someone smell lemons or something. Yes, we'll put lemon juice on the tongue. More pain because the, the, the salivary glands are kind of squeezing and then they squeeze against a little stone. So, so you're saying so, so salivary stones are painful and a problem, but that's not a cause of bad breath. Absolutely, yeah. Whereas tonsil stones can be a, a cause of bad breath. Um, and they're very different. Uh, they, they're uh, collections of, of debris that build up in the, the natural holes within the tonsils. So uh, tonsils, for, for people that, that don't know, are, are glands at the back of the throat on either side. You have two tonsils, one on each side of the throat, and if you shine a light down your throat in front of the mirror, you'll be able to see them as sort of pinkish reddish swellings on either side, right at the back of your throat, behind the back of the tongue. And uh, tonsils are something that we call lymphoid tissue. Now, lymphoid tissue helps you develop your immunity and, and fight infection. And tonsils are important in early life because they almost act like a filter at the back of your throat to pick up particles that you eat and drink and breathe in. Um, and they digest these particles and form antibodies um, to these particles that you then carry with you the rest of your life. So they, they gobble up bacteria and you produce antibodies and then you're resistant to these bacteria in the future. And during the first few years of life, tonsils are quite important in doing that. 
as you get older, they become pretty redundant. They don't really have much function. Um, but they still retain their, their anatomy. And their anatomy is, um, is composed of deep holes or crypts within the tonsils, which are designed to trap these particles. And they're, they're, that's partly how they function. But the trouble with these holes as you get older is that they can build up debris within them. And by debris, I mean bits of uh, dead skin cells, trapped bacterial particles, even food particles and things that get, get trapped in there. And they can build up over time actually form quite large hard lumps or concretions within the tonsil that we call tonsil stones and they're very very common and in fact anyone with reasonable sized tonsils if you sort of squeeze on the tonsil you can often squeeze out a bit of yellow <laughs> gunky stuff from the back of the throat and it smells and tastes pretty awful. <laughs> Um, so it's, it's not very nice stuff. It's not really harmful to your health, but uh, you know, people, once they've sort of discovered this, uh, sometimes people get a little bit obsessed with squeezing it out of the tonsils or picking at it or, or that sort of thing, or cleaning the tonsils with the, the back of their toothbrush and that sort of thing. And sometimes it can become a bit of an obsession and um, people worry about it being a cause of, of, of bad breath. Well, you know, pretty much everyone has some tonsil stone debris if they've still got their tonsils. Um, and uh, my personal feeling is it's, you know, bad breath is much more likely to come from other sources, from, from dental problems and poor dental hygiene or gum disease or, or that sort of thing. And actually, I, I'm very, very reluctant, as are most ENT surgeons, to recommend having your, your tonsils removed just because of tonsil stones, because they're almost a sort of natural, natural part of life, I'm afraid. So, so if somebody did have it sounds like this person has, you know, she's worried about her um, bad breath. So if that is a concern for people, would the first port of call actually be the dentist? Because mm -hmm. it's most likely to be caused actually by a dental problem that you don't realise before you're worrying about things like, is it because of my tonsils or something? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the first thing is uh, your breath usually smells of what you've eaten. And if you eat smelly food, uh, that will give you bad breath, garlic and spicy food and various things. So you know address that and then next step is to visit the dentist before you get get to an ENT specialist definitely. So the last question is actually um, actually kind of picking up on, on what, what you were just saying about tonsils um, and this is something actually do you know when I saw this question quite a few people were asking about this and I thought you know actually I don't even, I don't know the answer at all um, and it's what is the current thinking on removing tonsils? I know it changes. My 12-year-old daughter has had many tonsil infections, but our GP doesn't seem interested in surgery. And do you know, I started thinking, actually, I remember when I was at school, people were always going off, mm, mm. having their tonsils removed and then having ice cream and so on and so on. And then I remember when I was at medical school and I did ENT surgery at medical school, I remember then being told, oh, no, no, we don't do that. That's not, mm. you know, only last resort kind of thing. And, it's, and I don't know why it changed, I don't know if it's changed back again. So, so what's the current thinking? Yeah. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you look back to the, um, look at the figures back in the 1950s and 60s, we were doing a quarter of a million tonsillectomies a year in the UK, 250,000 tonsillectomies. We now do about 40,000 a year. So we've reduced that dramatically. And in fact, if you look in the, the throat of, uh, you know, anyone over the age of 60 or 70, very, very few, few of them actually got their tonsils. Um, because so many were done back in the day. But, but nowadays we realise that actually having your tonsils out is it's quite a serious operation and does have some significant risks. Um, and 
you know, people in the past have died from the complications of, of tonsillectomy. Thankfully, it's incredibly rare, but, you know, you want to be very careful and make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. And so, you know, a few years ago, there was a lot of work done, a lot of research done looking into who really benefits from having their tonsils out and when do the, the benefits outweigh these, these risks. And so a sort of set of guidelines were, were, were drawn up and, you know, we're looking at about sort of 10 to 15 years ago now. And um, since then, those guidelines have stayed relatively um, unchanged. Um, and the, the, the exact rules in the, in the UK are that you need to be having at least five episodes of proper tonsillitis requiring antibiotics um, a year for two years before you get your tonsils removed. There are exceptions. So if you have more than seven episodes in one year, then you get your tonsils out. Or if you have an abscess behind the tonsil uh, called a quinsy on more than two occasions, then you can get your tonsils out. Or obviously, if we're worried about a cancer or a tumour or something in the tonsils, then that obviously bypasses the, the, those recommendations. And it can be a bit frustrating for, for patients sometimes. They think, well, I've had a lot of tonsillitis. Why won't I get my tonsils out? But um, the guidelines are there for, for good reason. And the reasoning is that actually a lot of people will go through a period of a, for a few months or a year or so with quite a few tonsil infections, and then it will clear up and go away. Um, and you know, compare that to the uh, you know having to have um, a general anaesthetic and an operation, um, two weeks off work or school, and a five percent risk of having a, a bleed from the back of your throat and having to come back to hospital. Um, and once you explain that to people, they're often very understanding, and, and you say, well, we'll watch, we'll wait, and we'll see how things go for the next year or two. And if it continues to be a problem, don't worry, we'll we'll, we'll get them out. But often worth waiting a bit and seeing. Okay, brilliant. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. It's been really, really fascinating. I remember I did ENT, it's probably about over 20 years ago. Um, and I remember it was really interesting then. And this has been really, really fascinating, extraordinary, really like lots of really relevant topics that I think it will, uh, lots of listeners will be very interested to hear about. So thank you very much for your time. That's right. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you to Mr. Mace for joining me over the past three weeks. If you'd like more from Mr. Alastair Mace, he's at harleystreetent.com. And you can find us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And whilst you're there, please leave us a review. And don't forget to sign up for the Mail Plus briefings at mailplus.co.uk.